This is the Breachside Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. Head. McMorning watched as his stout lab assistant struggled with the manhole cover in the middle of the dark cobblestone street. He was sitting astride his new velocipede, with head held high, going round and round the grunting Sebastian in tight circles like a leaf going down a drain, the narrow rubber tires squeaking on the polished stones. These people just don't give me the respect I deserve, he said, or appreciate the hard work I put in. Too true, master. His assistant grunted as he heaved his considerable body weight on a large iron bar in an attempt to dislodge the cover. Who does he think he is to kick me out of my own morgue? And justice! That blind scrook couldn't be more pompous if she travelled everywhere on a throne. Ha! What a thought. I must mention that to old Nicodem next time I beat him at chess. Scrook, sir? Sebastian asked, as with a final belly flop on the bar, the manhole cover sprang free. It rolled down the street and spun a few times before coming to a ringing halt. It's a term of resentment that I've invented. I'm testing it out, McMorning stated matter-of-factly, as he brought his two-wheeled contraption to a halt by riding straight at Sebastian. The doughty assistant took the handlebars in his ample midriff with the barest of grunts. McMorning dismounted, then spent a few frustrating minutes fighting the machine as it stubbornly refused to fit down the manhole. He sighed and gave up. These things are never going to catch on, you know. I suppose I'm expected just to leave it here now and get another one tomorrow. The modern world has gone mad. Mark my words. Very good, sir, his assistant responded with a measured tone butlers would have killed for. The two of them descended the short ladder before splashing into the shallow sludge that oozed slowly through the wide sewer channel beneath. McMorning wound a dynamo-powered torch and held it aloft. The electric glow sent shadows looming on the curved walls as the two men started down the tunnel. If McMorning noticed the suffocating stench, he gave no sign. Malifaux's sewer system existed as a vast catacomb beneath the city. In truth, McMorning had discovered what was sewer today had been city once upon a time. New construction buried the old. It was a dangerous place to be. Not only was it widely utilized by those irritating arcanists in their smuggling operations, but it was also haven to nocturnal creatures who had first made the sewer their home in those years when the city lay uninhabited. These monsters were just as happy to dine on man as rat, and as they progressed, the two men kept a close watch. With his experimentations in necromancy, McMorning himself had contributed to the monsters that claimed the sewer as home. He found it a convenient place to dispose of his failed creations, although, of course, to a scientist there was no such thing as a failed creation, merely the discovery of a means of creating something he did not currently want. 
The disposal was a practice he shared with others of his craft, each finding it an easy method of doing away with the less desirable results of their scientific advances. Consequently, these sewers now brimmed with a vast population of the undead, some of which bore McMorning some minor and unjustified ill will. Despite these dangers, the sewer was one of the few ways to cross into the quarantine zone. In the first few weeks of Malifaux's resettlement, the guild quickly realized it could secure only a small fraction of the sprawling city. They established a series of checkpoints and cordoned off an area fit for habitation. The abandoned zones became known as the Quarantine Zone and represented the greatest portion of the city by several orders of magnitude. Treasure hunters and losers were attracted to the potential riches that might be discovered in the Quarantine Zone, but this portion of the city belonged to the predatory Neverborn. The few who journeyed beyond the guild checkpoints rarely returned. Those who survived the ordeal discovered the legacy of a vanished people. Mysterious artifacts, ingenious devices, and expansive libraries of arcane knowledge represented the riches of a culture at its height. Chief among the discoveries found in the quarantine zone were those volumes which described the craft of necromancy. It was a previously unknown art, and was outlawed almost as soon as it was discovered, but it was particularly valuable to those venturing beyond the Guild Enclave. Necromancy allowed those looters to populate districts of the quarantine zone with their own private militias of undead, fortifying strongholds and fighting off the Neverborn threat in that lawless area. The guild soon discovered that several budding necromancers had achieved this feat, and that several such strongholds existed beyond the reach of their officers. Consequently, the guild declared looting an offense punishable by death. Anyone attempting to cross into the quarantine zone would be shot on sight. This left the unpatrolled and ubiquitous sewer as one of the few clandestine passages between civilization and the quarantine zone. Arriving beneath another access hatch, McMorning held up his dynamo lamp. I think this is it. Sebastian reached up with his iron bar and rapped three times on the bottom of the manhole cover. After a moment, the cover was lifted away and the desiccated face of a morbidly obese woman appeared, her eyes devoid of life and emotion. Sybil! McMorning exclaimed. Any face that can make a man miss the sewers is wanted treasure. James always could pick him. Climbing out of the sewer, McMorning and Sebastian found themselves in a wide, unlit street. Unlike the Guild Enclave, which had seen significant restoration, this street was broken, its cobbles overgrown and curbs leaning drunkenly. Tall buildings stood among those that were ruined and collapsed, each a potential dwelling for a coven of never-born monsters or a hive of rogue zombies. Seamus stood nearby, attended by his reanimated harem, who held shuttered lanterns. Beside them was a large wagon, the kind a street vendor might use to peddle his wares. On the wagon was a hefty generator with leads running to a smaller device. The filigree parts and delicate components marked it as an artifact of old Malifaux. Lying next to the smaller device was a dismembered head. It took only a glance for McMorning to put the head's state of decomposition at a month or so. Seamus smiled and bowed deeply. McMorning, sure it's lovely to see you and your monkey again. Thank you for meeting with me and my ladies at such short notice. We have need of your assistance, you see. McMorning frowned. It was unlike Seamus to get to the point so quickly. He'd expected the usual torrent of lewd and unsavory blather. So your note said. A body had arrived at his morgue, and McMorning, in the course of the autopsy, had discovered the man had choked to death on a scrap of his own boot leather. A scrap that had a message on it from Seamus. The lunatic even signed it, as if the author of such a note could ever be in any doubt. My cousin died, Seamus said, casting his eyes down in poorly feigned sorrow, and I would stand as a personal favor if you'd let me have her body. A distant cousin, sure, but a kind and lovely girl. Her family will worry, so unless she's properly buried, you know, in the old country. Your cousin, is it? 
I've the most feeble-minded tinker in the Thieves Bazaar would bite that one, Seamus. I said that I had received your message. I have something you want, and I'm pretty sure I know exactly who you mean. What have you got for me? Seamus waved a hand, and one of his undead ladies of the night shambled over to the generator and tugged on a large lever. There was a suitable, meaty clunk to which McMorning nodded in approval. Approaching the wagon, Seamus took up a small, wand-like device which crackled and sparked violently at the tip. McMorning liked it already, and if it actually did something, he would like it even more. Holding the device over the decapitated head, Seamus squeezed the lever, sending a brilliant arc of electricity from the tip to the decaying flesh of the head. The light was so bright that everything beyond the flare of the electric arc was plunged into darkness. Only Seamus' face and the corpse's head were visible, seared in silver, one leering mask above another. The arc burned the flesh away, revealing the surface of the skull beneath the scalp. With careful movement, Seamus drew an arcane rune directly onto the bone. The symbol had sweeping arcs and sharp, straight lines that looked to McMorning like a raven with its wings spread wide. Just as suddenly as it had come, the light was gone, and McMorning winced as a stabbing pain shot through his head. It took him a few moments to recover his sight, and even then that mark hung in front of his eyes like a ghost. Damn you, Seamus! Warn me before you do that! At his side, Sebastian had fallen to his knees and clutched at his face, tears of blood trickling from between his fingers. McMorning opened his mouth to protest, but Seamus interrupted him. Good morning, Philip, old boy. How do you feel? The dismembered head, now with his scalp mostly burned away and a symbol scorched into the bone of his skull, opened its eyes and looked up at Seamus with a surprised expression. Its voice was faint and hollow, like wind through a crypt. I'm... I'm alive? With that woman... With the sword. I thought she'd killed me. Saints be praised. Ah, now, hold on there, Philip, Seamus explained calmly to the corpse head. You're one for jumping to conclusions. You are quite dead, sure. I've delayed you from reaching your afterlife, for now. But listen to me, being quite rude here. My name is Seamus, Philip, he tipped his enormous hat. You might even have heard of me. This is Sybil and her girls. Girls, Philip, this is Dr. McMorning. Although no shame if you haven't heard of him, for he is not quite as well known as I am. And that is his monkey. Philip's eyes darted back and forth and grew wider and wider as Seamus went on. Then he opened his mouth and screamed, with the sound of a man losing his last fragile grip on reality. Oh, do shut up. Seamus grabbed what was left of Philip's hair and thumped the head off the wagon with each word, then stuffed it into the bag at his feet grinning at McMorning the whole time like a maniacal salesman with unruly merchandise. You work hard, but sometimes you just don't get the respect, do you? From within the zippered bag, the muffled scream carried on until Seamus delivered a particularly vicious kick. He took up the old Malifaux device, and giving it a rough tug, he broke the leads from the generator and pulled the device free. He summoned one of his decomposing bells, and she lurched forward, carrying a small bundle wrapped in canvas cloth. McMorning, Seamus said. Delivering a smile so charming and devilish, McMorning felt an overpowering urge to check his wallet was still there. You old rogue. This here will waken Molly. She's not my cousin, and I apologize for lying to you. In my grief. She's my aunt. He waved a hand dismissively. My aunt's cousin. She will know how to reach me, but the guild will be watching. So I will provide a distraction, and you will provide means for her to escape from your morgue, which is a horrible place for a lady to be in any event. I'm sure you will agree. In exchange, I will give you this device and the manual to explain its operation. McMorning snorted. It came with a manual? Seamus shrugged. The sorts. More of a warning than an actual manual. I had it bound, sure. McMorning pointed at the bundle in the zombie's arms. 
What's the package? Jemma's face clouded and all the wild mirth vanished in an instant. It is the Gorgon's tear. Zombie pulled back the canvas wrappings and revealed the large green jewel in her hands. It was secured in a thick silver setting. A sickly green glow spread out so thick and heavy McMorning almost thought he could see it move. He kicked Sebastian, who was still on his knees. Get the stone from the zombie! Sebastian, still wiping blood from his eyes, stumbled to his feet. Seamus frowned. If your monkey breaks my stone, I would be very sore with you, McMorning. I'm about as like to touch it myself as you are, Seamus. We both know what that thing can do. Sebastian had been about to put his hands on it, but McMorning's comment froze him mid-reach. He got another kick for his trouble. Just get it! McMorning was looking down at the bag at Seamus' feet, which rocked as the head inside started to scream again. It's a deal. Seamus grinned like a shark who just scented a meal. Don't fret. Your morgue will be quite safe. How do you mean? Won't be damaged at all. Probably. Damaged? By what? The signal, of course. Seamus shook his head in exasperation. I knew you'd get like this. Only a small explosion. from our sponsors. It's the first and only name, Malifaux Dining, opened by a shadowy cabal of top hat wearing gentlemen two years ago. Drex pulled itself up from the ground and now they're here at the tippity top of necromantic, oh oh hang on, that should read gastronomic, gastronomic experiences in the city. Our staff are eternally loyal to our establishment and will wait on your every need. In fact, we're pretty sure they never sleep either. They are just that passionate. Our special this week is the beet salad. Like every other week, really, you'd be mad not to give it a go. Dregs, it's to die for. Two more stories for you now. Luck of the draw and the union. Luck of the draw. This was her kind of place. Victoria smiled to herself as the hustle and drive of the new construction whirled around her, and she let a little more swagger into her walk. Where the Guild Enclave was controlled and patrolled, all rigid stonework and uptight authority, the rough-hewn, fresh-cut edges of this outlying district were much more her style. This felt like a frontier, built on equal parts hope and desperation, gin and ingenuity, sin and sinew. She loosed her sword, because frontiers could be risky but breathed a little easier nonetheless. She smelled sap and sawdust on the wind, and sharp lye from the laundries. The clanging of a blacksmith's hammer merged with galloping hooves down the unpaved streets, and the shouts and cries of street traders, corner preachers, havering drunks, and the catcalls of red-backed workmen sweating in the sun. The letter she'd received was remarkable for two things. Firstly, the job was like nothing she'd ever done before, with payment to match. Secondly, she'd received it while admiring the shop window of a gunsmith. The delivery man just handed it to her after she stopped to inspect a pair of clockwork pistols with mother-of-pearl handles in a satin-lined case. The envelope read, Victoria, before the shop window, Mortar's Ironmongery, Four Mile Street. The delivery man insisted he'd been given it the day before. The letter itself had rather cryptically been signed, Z, and concluded with a sketch of a key and a symbol. Walking around the new construction, it did not take her long to find a saloon called the Key and Gong, nestled between Sean's Hammer Emporium and a ramshackle lodging house. 
The establishment was built in the Three Kingdoms style, with a terracotta tiled roof in contrast to the tar roofs of its neighboring buildings. The sign hanging over the facade was of a key and gong. Victoria entered the saloon cautiously, the stale scent of tobacco and spilled alcohol barely masking the bodily odors of the mixed clientele. The barmaids gave her a once-over, but the sword made it clear she was no prostitute trolling for custom, and that same sword made the men look back to their drinks without staring too long. Victoria headed to the back of the room, climbed a set of spiral stairs, and found the room with the number nine scratched in its peeling paint. As she knocked, the unlatched door swung open on its squeaky hinges. Inside was a small bed, a wardrobe, table, and two chairs. In one of the chairs sat an elderly woman hunched over the table and carving the surface with a rusted knife. The woman lifted her head and beckoned to Victoria with her knife. Come in. Have a seat. The old woman's voice cracked in a way that suggested she didn't use it often. Victoria bowed silently and did as she was bid, taking a seat across from the woman, sitting just far enough back to be out of reach of that knife. Looking down at the surface of the table, she saw that the old woman had carved up most of the surface. She recognized a cluster of three dots as three stars that hung in the northern Malifaux night sky. She had carved a number of these dots and connected them into a series of unfamiliar constellations. Victoria studied the carving for a long moment before glancing up at the old woman. Your Z? The rider. That's right, child. And you are my contractor, yes? I am when you pay me. Who's the job? It was always who. The what never changed. The old woman reached into a rough-spun cloak that hung around her shoulders and drew out a deck of worn cards. With surprising agility, she shuffled the deck. Laying the deck in the center of the table, she flipped over the top card and laid it in front of Victoria. The card was the Lord of Winter. This is the creature. Victoria narrowed her eyes, looking at the card. I don't understand. He is not a man. He is a creature. He is power, ambition, and pride. He has murdered and worse, and lives today without consequence. He is called December. Height, build, distinctive scars. You ever done this before, Granny? I'll tell you what you need to know, and maybe more than you want to know. The rider lifted her eyes and looked across the table. For the cards, Will. These cards, young one, have the ability in them to see fate and revealing fate. They grant the ability to change it. Victoria shook her head. Another sideshow hustler looking for a gullible mark. Only the strangeness of the letter's delivery kept her in her seat. Curiosity still peaked. She would give this old woman a few minutes of her time. The rider turned over another card and placed it above the first. The Seven of Tomes. This card, child, represents your hopes. This card is what brought you to me. You've traveled and gathered pieces of legends, but you desire above all things to become a legend yourself. Seven is a mystical number. It is the number of creation at the beginning of days and of destruction at the end of time and of the ages of man that lie between both these things. The Seven of Tomes represents a tale that lives beyond the power of time. This is the tale you yearn to write. This is what brought you to me. Victoria was not impressed. She was already certain that her reputation would live for many generations. There was also mention of payment in stones. That is really what brought me to you. Oh, yes, child. 
We will get to that. Quite the mercenary you are. The rider turned over another card and placed it below the Lord of Winter. This card is the Queen of Crows, who represents the comfort of death. Her mercy is a quick end to life. She does not shed a tear for those departed, for her heart has grown detached from the living. She has witnessed too much death and possesses no wonder of the magic of life. And seeing her face, the dead no longer sorrow at their fate. This is your experience, the counterpart to your hope. There was truth in the old woman's words. Victoria knew. Death for her was such a casual thing. Their only compassion for the dead was to send them into the next world quickly without suffering. If she was to be a queen in this little story, it might be worth hearing. Go on. Yes. Yes. Now the cards will describe the path to your goal. That which empowers you to defeat the Lord of Winter. Zoraida drew another card and placed it to the left of the Lord of Winter. Oh. The Ace of Rams. This card represents your past. Something you bring with you that will provide for your victory. The Ace of Rams always represents a weapon. Victoria considered the weight of the sword that lay across her lap. It was the blade known as the Honjo Masamuni. Legends described it as the greatest sword ever forged, which is why she had gone to so much effort finding it in the first place. It had never failed her. If this reading was true and the old woman hadn't stacked the deck, which remained a distinct possibility, Victoria was certain that the Ace of Rams represented her Masamuni. The next card will represent your future. Something you must still find... Without it, you cannot hope to overcome your obstacle. The old woman drew another card and laid this to the right of the Lord of Winter, so that all five cards now formed a cross. The Two of Masks is your mirror and represents a confrontation with yourself. The manifestation of this confrontation can take on many forms. As with all cards that belong to the masks, it is mysterious. You will find in this confrontation an ally who will assist you. Without giving Victoria time to contemplate the Two of Masks, the rider turned over another card. This was placed on top of the Lord of Winter and perpendicular to it. The rider gave a soft and bitter laugh, as if appreciating some irony Victoria could not see. And where the Two of Masks will empower you, the Three of Masks stands as your obstacle. The Three of Masks represents a conspiracy. It is the three sisters whose true purpose is unknown. They conspire with you or against you, ally or foe. Their conspiracy hinders you. You must overcome it to defeat the Lord of Winter. An ally and a conspiracy. I work alone and I trust no one. No allies and no partners. Conspiracies don't bother me. Perhaps that is so. The rider drew one more card, and instead of placing it with the others, she reached across the table to hand it to Victoria. It was the Ace of Tomes. As Victoria considered the cards, the rider stood and took a small wooden chest from the bottom of a wardrobe. She shuffled back and sat down. And what does this card represent? Victoria asked. That card represents the result of your labors. The Ace of Tomes is the locked book. It is the secret that is kept. The secret that will be revealed to you. Even I do not know it. The Ace of Tomes is beyond your reach at this time. Let me show you now the stones I promised you. 
She opened the chest. In three separate velvet-lined compartments were three small crystals, each milky white in color. To one side was a cold piece of parchment. The old woman spread it out on the table. It was an old map of the city of Malifaux. Far to the east of the city was a black mark that looked like an ink splash, but too angular to be accidental. The rider prodded this symbol on the page with one calloused finger. Journey to this place, and you will encounter the creature known as December. You'll not mistake him. Defeat him, and the secret of the Ace of Tomes will be yours. He withdrew one of the crystals and handed it to Victoria. Take this soul stone with you. Its sisters will be your payment on your return. The Union. She had thought there would be fire. She deserved fire. But death was bleak, dark, and cold. Maybe it was not so bad after all, thought Rasputina. She stood on a windswept mountaintop, a cloud of snow swirling angrily around her. She saw, as once she'd seen in a dream, a tribe of emaciated followers dancing around a towering effigy. She stood at its foot, consumed in its shadow, and touched by a chill that froze her heart. He was here, waiting for her, beyond the veil. December, Rasputina whispered. I have failed you. His voice was cruel and sharp, like jagged ice. Rasputina, you have not died, and this is not the hell you fear. Lilith has failed to kill you, and even now your rescuers arrive. You risk my wrath with your weakness, but once again events conspire to favor me. The device has never been closer. This was another dream, Rasputina realized, which meant she and her hopes were not yet dead. Remember, she cried. You remember your promise to me. The voice crackled on the wind. I've not forgotten. The device will serve both of us. Death will no longer bar either of us from that we most desire. The voice paused for a moment, then issued a thunderous laughter. Rasputina spun, fists raised. December, do not toy with me. I do not. The mountaintop rumbled with another peal of laughter. Lilith has been driven back. She did not even attempt to fight. Furious. Rasputina felt her head spin. The snow in her dream began to swirl in her head, the shades of snow and shadow bleeding into each other. The man carries you. The voice of the effigy was slipping far away from her. The snowy mountaintop blew away into darkness and she fell headlong into the black void beneath. Reality came back to her slowly, but her body was unresponsive. She became aware of voices speaking around her. There was a woman of few words, but confident with wry humor. Another voice, a deep one, belonged to a man, thoughtful, passionate, but guarded. The third voice, though, was the dominant one. This man sounded like a politician, Rasputina thought, one used to speaking to rooms full of other rich and powerful men. The first man spoke. It's the woman from the Guild's Wanted posters. Rasputina. She's an escaped convict, sentenced for drowning her own child. They say she broke a man by the name of Philip Toomers out of the sanitarium, and murdered him, too. There was a small pause the smoothly oiled politician speaking next. And you're sure, Marcus, that it was Lilith trying to kill this woman? I know what I saw, Victor, but her kind can confuse even my eyes. Miranda's senses never lie. Who was it, Miranda? The woman, Miranda, paused before answering. It was Lilith. This Philip Toomers, you recognize the name, Victor? It was less a question than it seemed. This Miranda was very sure of herself. Philip Toomers was a member of Professor Highland's expedition. 
That was Victor again. He sounded cautious, as if unsure how much to reveal. They crossed a swamp in one of my vessels. His name was all over the papers, although I doubt you'd pay keep up with those. Every member of this team either died at the research site or from a sickness upon returning. He was the only one to survive, only to be murdered. By our guest here, according to the guild. Her wagon was headed toward the swamp, Marcus noted. She's awake, Miranda said, and has been for a little while. Is that not so, my dear? Rasputina could feel a tingling sensation spreading out from her core and down through her body. There was a static sensation that buzzed inside her. Her eyes flickered as she opened them, trying to filter the bright glow. Slowly, her surroundings came into focus, and she could see a small, milky-colored crystal glowing in the woman's hand. Miranda held it over her body, and a smoky energy billowed out of it, spilling over Rasputina's body and seeping into her blood, filling her with strange warmth. Beside her, a tall, dark man, who she was certain was Marcus, stood with his arms crossed over a broad chest. The other man, Victor, eased himself onto one knee beside Rasputina. He spoke kindly. Hello, Rasputina. My name is Victor Ramos. My associates found you in the wilds. You're now at Hollow Marsh. Do you understand? Rasputina could feel the strange jewel in her head, not dulling the pain, but mending it, returning her normally sharp wits. Her voice was hoarse from screaming in the woods. Yes, of course I understand. You've been talking in your sleep and calling out for December. Is this a person? Is it someone we should reach to inform of your accident? The mention of the name brought her back to clarity with sudden force. She sat bolt upright, causing Ramos and Miranda to draw back. Wherever she was, it was some kind of factory. Giant iron girders sailed over the platform the quartet were gathered on, and below her was a labyrinth of cogs. The turning sounds of the gears were somehow muffled, allowing relatively easy conversation, here in what seemed a makeshift triage. No, she said. You can't reach him. He was lost at the Kythera ruins. I am traveling there to place a remembrance. I see. I am sorry for your loss, Ramos said. What is this wonderful place? Rasputina asked, keen to avoid talking about her journey. She'd clearly hit on the right subject, for Ramos gave an expansive, eager smile. Ah, this is Hollow Marsh Pumping Station. This facility, which I designed, services all the mines in the area, pumping them clear of water to keep the miners safe. It is also the headquarters of the Miners and Steamfitters Union. Rasputina touched her fingers to her head, gingerly checking to see just how bad she was injured. Surprisingly, there was no wound to be found. You're fine, said Miranda, standing and tucking the stone away into a pouch at her hip. She gave Rasputina an odd look. You're very lucky she didn't kill you before we got there. Standing, Ramos offered Rasputina his hand. Leaving Miranda with a polite farewell, the two walked off together through the giant complex. Rasputina overwhelmed by the vast structure and the contained mechanized fury of its beating mechanical heart, followed along without prompting. Even at Ridley Station, she'd never seen anything to compare with the sheer scale of this. And the assault on her senses, the deafening thunder of the pistons, the blinding shower of sparks, the oppressive odor of hot oil and burnt metal, the shimmering heat of the furnaces, was so intense and unrelenting. The repetitive, percussive dance of so many different but intimately linked parts reminded her for a moment of her dream. But in whose shadow she stood here, she could not tell. By the time the two arrived at Ramos' office, she was grateful for the relative peace and quiet. The room was filled with technical drawings stacked on desks and stuffed in bookshelves. The walls were papered in schematics which, to Rasputina, looked like arcane symbols that could just as likely be the components for some magic ritual as they were for some mining machinery. One wall was covered in sketches of a small drilling machine, or possibly a very large mixing bowl. Spread out on Ramos' desk was a nest of highly technical drawings. She saw what she assumed to be a drawing of the facility's outflow lagoon with a submerged structure at the bottom, 
Other drawings scattered nearby showed various components of what seemed to be an enormous machine. A single strut, an iron beam with an organic shape like an insect's legs measured twelve meters high in length, suggesting a machine of truly mammoth proportions. Each of the drawings was labeled Project Leviathan. Ramos took a seat behind his desk and folded up the plans, shuffling them onto another desk piled with crumb-covered plates and forks. Rasputina saw one of the milky-white crystals lying beneath the mess of papers. This, said Ramos, noticing her gaze. This mineral's called soulstone. Are you familiar with it? I've seen the industrial-grade soulstone at Ridley Station. It looked like little more than dust, she replied. Ramos took up the stone in his hand and with a gesture pointed it at an assortment of metal components sitting in the corner. Held within them in an iron clamp was a dull grey stone. A white cloud of energy billowed through the air from the stone in Ramo's hand and washed over the clamp. The dull grey of the stone brightened as the light began to glow from within it. Soon the stone was the same milky colour. To Rasputin's surprise, the pile of iron parts lurched. As if suddenly imbued with life, the components gathered themselves together to form an intricate machine with long, spidery appendages. There was a whistle of steam as the machine's boiler was fired by the heat of the freshly charged soulstone, and the machine rose up on a set of four mechanical legs. It skittered across the floor and climbed up onto the desk in front of Rasputina. She drew back in alarm, frost gathering on her fingertips, but it merely settled down like a soldier at ease. As you can see, this stone is of a higher grade. There was no small amount of self-satisfaction in Ramos' words. And that woman, Miranda, used one to wake me. How? How did she do it? He peered at the mechanical spider. How did you just do that? Standing, Romo's shadow fell over her as he held out the crystal. I can show you. Members of the Arcanist Union have free access to these stones. Rasputina looked from the stone to the man beyond. Even if December was truly her friend, aligning with him had brought her enemies she could never have imagined. It was a simple calculation for any ex-convict. Another pair of eyes to watch your back could never go amiss. But no one helped her without wanting something in return. Nothing and no one in this world was ever free. She took the stone. As soon as she touched it, the magic inside her, that shard of wind as she held inside her heart, swelled. Flowing out from inside her, a tide of energy swept through the room, leaving behind a thin film of frost on the walls. Ramos flinched as that frigid wave washed over him, and she saw him look at her with a hunger in his eyes. So was she to be another piece of his great machine? More metal for him to bend to his purpose? Was this what fate had in store for her, beholden to one saviour after another? Rasputina turned the stone over and over in her hands, warmth slowly returning to the room. No matter what others intended for her, with enough of these, she would be her own master. Then show me. Step 1. Get your collaborator friend. Step 2. Stand completely unarmed in front of this Eurythavox station. And Step 3. Just wait for a heavily armed escort to whisk you away. Thank you very much in advance. And remember, bad things happen. (laughs) 